BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. It's the Barbell Medicine Podcast, where we bring modern medicine to strength and conditioning and strength and conditioning to modern medicine. I'm your host, Dr. Jordan Feigenbaum. This is episode 233. We're talking about superphysiological doses of testosterone and performance-enhancing drugs. We had to talk about drugs, Austin, finally, and and this time for our audience, the cool kind. <laughs> <laughs> Not the kind that I'm used to using uh, in practice day-to-day. So that's, that's right. Hey. And that uh, silky voice on the other side of the line is the second most <laughs> handsome doctor in North America, Dr. Austin Brocky. We're back, baby. We, we had a two-week break. People, I just did an AMA thing on Instagram or whatever, put that up last night. And people are like, what happened to the podcast? Are you retiring or whatever? Yeah, I'm we like, shut it all down. It's done. Yeah, we, <laughs> we, we shut down the studio, whatever. No, I just, I, I went on a vacation, like a couple days, and people lost their mind. They're like, where have you been? What are you doing? I'm like, I'm, I've taken a vacation, like my second vacation in 10 years. It's fine. And then I moved. So I'm like, give me, you know, I get my, my two weeks off per year. It's fine. Yeah, go back and listen to a previous episode if you needed to, uh, you know, keep yourself entertained. <laughs> Seriously, this is, so this is episode 233. I know we have like 245-ish, maybe 250 total episodes up because the pain and rehab uh, specific ones were, were uh, numerized differently. Yeah, yeah. And I'm like, what are the odds that somebody's actually listened to all of the podcasts? Or retained all of them. <laughs> well, I, I, I mean, even I haven't. But, you know, I think maybe my dad might be yeah. the only one who's listened to all the podcasts. <laughs> it's wild because he does. He listens to all of them. But then, you know, when we're talking about them, we're playing golf or whatever. He's like, now you said this one thing and that makes you sound real stupid. And I'm like, <laughs> Leonard, come on, man. <laughs> no, no, he's more supportive than that usually, although not all the time. Uh, in any case, yes, if you're listening to this and you're wondering what's been going on, I took a vacation. I went up to Bandon Dunes for our golf listeners or golf enthusiasts who also happen to be listeners. Bandon Dune is like a, a little slice of heaven up on the coast of Oregon. I think my longest day, we did 36 on the two longest tracks uh, out there. And it was like uh, 37,000 steps because there's no wow. carts. Yeah, that's a lot of work. <laughs> yeah, I was like, I think my feet are sore. <laughs> like, is, am I getting an overuse injury in my foot? No, uh, so it was fine. And then I moved a couple blocks up the street, just wanted a new start. And uh, yeah, figured I'd give us, give us a few weeks off. Austin, you had a few weeks off, I assume. During that entire time, you're just working on When Logic Fails Part 2. Or... <laughs> it coincided with the start of the new academic year for the hospital, for the medical school. So I just finished up a couple of weeks in the hospital with brand new interns and students and residents. And then I also was just up at the medical school yesterday um, with the new new classes as they advance. Second, you know, new second years from first years and then uh, 
tomorrow I'll be back up there for the the fresh first year med students to get them on their way. Yeah. So for listeners at home, like July one marks effectively the new year in medicine, which Mm -hmm. means everybody effectively advances. First year med students become second year medical students. Previously, fourth year med students have now graduated. They are doctors and now they're interns. That's their first year of residency. Although again, the nomenclature, why is it like intern? And then now you're a resident, your second year, whatever. I don't know the history of of all that. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. You move on. But uh, it's, there's this uh, sort of angst or, or concern that, Ooh, if you have to go to the hospital in July, you're, you're potential to have the worst care or something or bad care because everybody's new. Um, Although when it's been studied that it really hasn't been, you know, elucidated as far as I, as far as I know. Yeah, I mean, I think the majority of people uh, in these situations, A, uh, recognize the gravity of the position that they're in, particularly new interns who are terrified to, to screw up. And so they are exceptionally cautious in general. Um, and in general, everybody also tends to just be more on alert and supervise a little bit more closely during this period of time. And so historically, you know, I've tended to be around a little more and, and always make sure I'm as available as I, as I need to be. I was a little bit pleasantly surprised this July. I had an unusually good team, which, um, you know, everybody seemed to, they were functioning at a level ahead of where I would expect them <laughs> to be. And so that uh, actually let me relax a little bit in terms of giving them a little bit more room and autonomy, which is uh, unusual for me to be able to do this early in the year. So it was a, it was a good month. Yeah. Yeah. That's been kind of my, my sense. I mean, I remember my first like day on the wards and I'm like terrifying. (laughs) It's absolutely terrified. Yeah. And I remember the, one of the nurse asked for like a Tylenol PRN prescription. I was like, I don't, can this patient get Tylenol? And I'm like (laughs) deep diving through up to date on Tylenol and all the potential like contraindications. Yeah. 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 And I'm like, I I think, let me ask the attending. The attending's like, really, bro? I'm like, I don't know, man. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Yeah. yeah, So that's cool. Yeah. But it's, it's cool to the, the classes advance and you get to meet new, you know, new students, new learners. And yeah, it's a, it's a good time uh, for all. Um, Before we get into this week's podcast, uh, which again is on high doses of testosterone and their effect on sports performance and other outcomes, in addition to just performance enhancing drugs in general. Uh, We have new articles on the website. We have uh, new apparel on the website. We have new templates on the website. Uh, All of our supplements are back in stock, and we do have uh, some upcoming live events. Uh, We'll be in LA in September. Right now, it's scheduled to be a pain and rehab seminar. Um, That's at Monarch Fitness Club. That's in September. In October, we'll have our two-day health and performance seminar in uh, uh, Sacramento at Dr. Untamed. That is Alan Thrall's gym. Uh, That's always a good time up there. So if you're uh, looking for a live in-person seminar stateside, we want to see you. And if you happen to live in Australia, We'll be there in January 2024. Uh, We'll be in Sydney one week and then Perth the weekend after. And then, you know, if you happen to be an expert in Kawakas and want to, you know, show us around Rottnest Island, uh, I'm taking I'm taking tour guides. So just, you know, slide. Actually, if you slide into Austin's DMs, he can screen you (laughs) to make sure that you're 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 qualified. But uh, yeah, that's our, our list of upcoming events. And that's all linked in the description below. All right. So Austin. Do you think we're going to get flagged for like talking about ex- explicit material on this podcast? Are we going to get like a parental advisory warning because we're talking about drugs? Um, I don't think that that is likely to be the case, but you know. Well, when we, when we talked about uh, the pandemic. may come after us. That's what I'm saying. Well, when we <laughs> talked about the pandemic, for example, right, you get flagged for like COVID-19 stuff. And now just actually saying that some AI crawler thing is going to be like, oh, they talk about that. We're not talking about that. Just, you know, unlearn that AI. 
This podcast is brought to you by Pioneer Belts. At Pioneer Belts, they have belts for all applications. If you're interested on how belts work or how to choose a belt, check out our podcast episode number 219. Most people will do best with a four inch wide belt that's 10 millimeters thick, either single prong or lever, depending on the fastening mechanism that you prefer. Pioneer has industry exclusive micro adjustments on their lever belts for ease of use without tools. They also make custom belts to your specs, depending on what you want. Trusted by some of the world's strongest athletes, choose Pioneer for your weightlifting belts and accessories. Head to generalleathercraft.com and tell them Barbell Medicine sent you. This is a little bit different than our normal podcast because usually what we do is we focus on like a health related topic and how it intersects with fitness and then kind of give you guys some practical uh, tips on how to either modify the trajectory or improve trajectory or, you know, sometimes it's just training stuff. This is more like a historical view of like how uh, performance enhancing drugs uh, came into sport and their current sort of use rates or incidents, um, like how many people are using them and then sort of what their effects are. So it's more just like information, but I, people are really interested in this. I don't know. You don't do as many ask me anything on Instagram as I do, but every time I do one, I always get a question on PEDs. Do you get those too? And you just don't answer them because you don't, you don't care or not that you don't care. You're, you're a caring person, but you're just like, <laughs> I, I yeah, I mean, I do, I, I do the AMAs a couple times a year, I think, because I often have a lot to do at any given time. And I definitely get questions on them. And I, I don't know that I would claim sufficient expertise uh, to just be able to casually give quality answers in that format without doing a bunch of reading that I often don't have a ton of time for. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Just prioritizing like what you actually want to learn about, need to learn yeah. about, etc. And then yeah. interest. Okay, so just a brief review, we're going to talk about, we're going to focus on testosterone and it being uh, administered or taken at doses higher than the testosterone replacement therapy dose. We'll get into the specifics of that. Uh, but just a review, we have two other podcasts on testosterone that we've done uh, recently, and I'll link both of those in the description below. But just as a review from those podcasts, the normal testosterone levels for men uh, usually varies between 300 to 800 nanograms per deciliter. Again, this varies by lab. Uh, male hypogonadism is a condition resulting from a failure of the testes to produce physiological concentrations of testosterone and or a normal number of sperm due to disease at one or more areas of the hypothalamic pituitary testicular axis. That's a long way of saying that either you're not producing enough testosterone because the testes themselves are uh, faulty or somewhere along the way where you know various hormones and signaling molecules uh, just aren't able to do their job. Um, there's some interesting uh, parts of the data with respect to how many people actually have hypogonadism. Sometimes that's just been measured by the ability, like fertility rates, which is different than just testosterone levels. We talk about that in, in depth in our male hypogonadism uh, uh, podcast. But yeah, in general, normal levels for men, 300 to 800 nanograms per deciliter. In women, it's 15 to 46 nanograms per deciliter, so much lower. Uh, again, I don't know that anyone listening to this is surprised by that, but just a brief review. As far as the relationship between health and testosterone, there's no singular optimal level. Again, there's a range of normal health promoting levels. And the way we kind of view it is that somebody's testosterone level is likely reflective of their current health status rather than predictive of their health trajectory. And what that means is that if somebody has a lower testosterone level, although still within the normal range, it might be completely fine. But 
uh, in general, when you see large differences and averages between groups of people, uh, the group with a higher level tends to be healthier in general, less sort of disease um, in that group. So less heart disease, less diabetes, less uh, obesity, et cetera. And those conditions can actually cause lower testosterone levels by themselves. And so when you see the correlation between low testosterone levels, for example, and uh, individuals with obesity, you're like, oh, well, we just need to give these individuals with obesity testosterone to fix that. But in reality, it's more like now because um, these individuals uh, have too much adipose tissue, that's why their testosterone levels are a bit lower. And again, we talk about that in great detail in our previous podcasts. Uh, and so, you know, if you just want to know like how to improve your testosterone levels, there, there are no secrets here. You know, all the general health promoting advice that we commonly give, get enough exercise, eat a health promoting dietary pattern, get, get enough sleep, uh, high quality sleep, things of that nature. All of that would quote unquote optimize your testosterone level. And I'll cut to the chase. There are no like supplements you can take over the counter <laughs> or like certain protocols that are going to really goose your testosterone levels to a higher uh, level that you would actually notice. And our final uh, series on testosterone, our final podcast on testosterone will actually cover sort of lifestyle changes and their effect on T levels. Uh, okay. And then lastly, the relationship between performance and normal levels of testosterone at, in a cross-section studies, when you're just looking at people, uh, at a snapshot in time, there's a positive correlation between testosterone levels and things like lean body mass and strength. And there's an inverse relationship between testosterone levels and body fat, meaning that the higher somebody's testosterone levels are, the lower their body fat tends to be. And again, that has to do with the sort of health status of that individual. You'd expect leaner individuals who are carrying more lean body mass, et cetera, uh, to likely not have um, certain diseases like cardiovascular disease, type 2 diabetes, obesity, et cetera. And yeah, because that, because of that, they have higher uh, testosterone levels, again, within the normal limits. What's most important here is that despite these uh, correlation, despite these correlations, Testosterone levels are not predictive of how people do with respect to lean body mass improvements, strength improvements, endurance improvements, et cetera, uh, with, again, uh, being in the normal range of normal testosterone levels. So that means they're not either hypogonadal, so low testosterone levels, or super physiological levels of testosterone. The acute changes in testosterone and other hormones after a workout are important, uh, it seems like, to uh, sort of uh, exercise outcomes in that they occur and they're involved in the process, but they are the small differences between like, oh, you have a higher testosterone level after a workout or lower testosterone level after a workout um, or don't seem to be predictive of how people do as far as how much muscle mass they gain, how much strength they gain, um, et cetera. So again, they things change, but as far as like does a higher T level or lower T level after a workout actually predict more or less strength gain doesn't seem to be a reliably measurable effect. And so to the extent there are inter-individual differences, we're aware of that, but they just don't seem to matter that much. Now, this podcast is going to focus on what would happen if somebody took extra testosterone to raise their levels higher than normal. And and Austin, uh, you know, so you're in the hospital uh, most of the time, so you it's unlikely that you actually are checking T levels <laughs> on folks in the hospital, but certainly, you know, with some of your uh, primary care uh, patients that you see remotely, you've measured uh, t testosterone levels. Uh, what's like the lowest level that you've seen and what's the highest level that you've seen? <laughs> uh, yeah, the lowest level that I've ever seen was effectively undetectable. Uh, it was like 
zero, basically. And that was in a person who had uh, AIDS, HIV infection, that was very, very advanced and multiple other issues going on. Um, and then the highest I've seen was, I think, just probably also above the upper limit of detection, like well over like 2200 or something like that um, in somebody who was on multiple, you know, exogenous substances that they were using. And so I've seen, you know, those extremes and, and, and pretty much everything in between. And you're right that that's almost never something that gets checked in the hospital. Like like you mentioned, that any kind of illness can impact these levels, and people are usually in the hospital for a reason, and that can throw off those levels, um, you know, physiologically and pathophysiologically, and make them effectively impossible to interpret. And so, if you're going to check these things, it should be in somebody who is stable and you know um, at their at their baseline state of health, usually in a in a uh, outpatient type type setting, not while somebody is sick. And, and the only other thing I would mention, you know, to add to your summary from before is that um, this just gets back to our chronic conversations around lab tests and their interpretation um, in the sense that when we are checking these things, we're really only looking at half of the system. And we, we talked about this on the previous episode that testosterone circulates in the blood, but in order to do its job, it has to bind a receptor. And the receptors can vary in terms of their sensitivity of, of how much they like to bind testosterone. And we do not currently have a effective way to measure people's receptor sensitivity clinically. And so there's a lot of, um, you know, complicating factors there that can lead people to have higher or lower levels that are of no real significance because that's secondary to differences in their receptor sensitivity. And basically the system will equilibrate out at a given level based on their receptor sensitivity. And so the reason I mention this is just because it's, there's so much content out there, particularly in like the health and fitness space where people are talking about testosterone levels and they make it sound good, especially when they're like, do this in your training because it makes testosterone go up after a workout. And as you just mentioned, those changes after workout don't really matter um, for anything, you know, significant. And similarly, people put a ton of emphasis on just what the absolute level is without realizing that we're only looking at part of the system. And we're often, they're often talking about those levels in isolation outside of the context of what is the person, you know, experiencing, what are their signs, what are their symptoms, what's the context, you know, when are we measuring it, all these other factors that we kind of hammered on quite a bit in the previous episodes. So summarizing, yeah, it's complicated. <laughs> yeah. I, I was trying to think, is, are there any conditions where low testosterone or even high testosterone levels are like pathognomonic for a particular condition? Like if you, you know, needed to diagnose something and you were like, oh, yeah, boom, they got a low T level, like they have this thing. I mean, I don't think it's, for example, like a an AIDS defining illness, for example, having like a super low, it's just associated with having that condition as far as I know. Yeah, I'm not aware of anything on the low side. I am also not sure on the high side. I wonder, I'd have to look this up because I've never seen such a thing. But for example, if somebody had like a LH secreting tumor or something like that, if that might lead to some high high levels, but that's uh, exceptionally rare. <laughs> yeah, yeah, thankfully. Okay, so let's get into this. Let's talk about the history of testosterone in sport. So testosterone, as far as it being used or, or administered exogenously, so from outside the body, dates back to 1870 when Charles Edward Brown Saccard, a physiologist and neurologist from the East African country of Mauritius, gave himself extract from dog and cow testicles. And he claimed an improvement in energy and vigor at age 72. He said he could like bound up steps and he had more energy to like do experiments or whatever. Uh, subsequently, this uh, Brown Saccard elixir was marketed and sold, uh, even though it had like homeopathic or extremely low doses of testosterone. I imagine he just like used a mortar and pestle to like, you know, grind down 
<laughs> cow, cow and uh, a dog like, you know, testicles and then diluted that subsequently into water. And so like the water remembers that it had testosterone. It reminds in it. me of uh, Mike's secret stuff from Space Jam. <laughs> yeah, right, right. But this was maybe like the original sort of snake oil as it, yeah. w- as it were. So <laughs> and, and apparently when this came out, an Austrian medical journal said, because uh, he gave a lecture about this, uh, an Austrian medical journal said the lecture must be seen as further proof of the necessity that we should retire professors who have attained their three score in 10 years, which means basically those in their 70s. Effectively, they said, this dude's old. He's a crank. <laughs> we should retire him, <laughs> which is kind of funny that they recognize that even back in 1870, that this, you know, elixir, as it were, was likely not to be, uh, you know, trusted or taken or whatever. But that's kind of when this first idea of like, hmm, maybe there's something to this. And actually, this guy's pretty famous. <laughs> he's, he's done some stuff. Uh, so initially when I saw his name, I saw brown Saccard. I was like, oh, brown Saccard syndrome, the hemisection of the spinal cord. Like I learned about that in neuroanatomy. And yeah, any first year med student will recognize that. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It's like the uh, wild thing. He kind of figured out that like the pain and temperature fibers, uh, nerve fibers uh, crossed or decussated across the um, spinal cord. um, And then subsequently coined this syndrome. Uh, I guess it was a farmer who accidentally like they were using like a scythe or whatever harvesting sugar cane and they like got themselves in the back and perfectly, perfectly hemisected yeah, <laughs> yeah. Bad, bad luck man <laughs> i know i was like i was like who had it worse phineas gage with the railroad <laughs> sort of thing or <laughs> and it, if you're not a neuroanatomist or you've never taken neuroanatomy both of those things probably fly over your head but uh, some good reading if you if you want to check that out uh, he's also credited with discovering hormones as it were apparently he had removed the adrenal glands in an animal and they subsequently died because if you don't have adrenal glands, those are these little organs that sit on top of the kidneys. You don't get things like cortisol, for example, which is majorly important for like maintaining blood pressure, which just as an aside, we've never done a podcast on adrenal fatigue, right? And how it's, you know, not really a thing. But if your adrenal glands were actually quote unquote tired or fatigued and failed to operate at their normal level, you know what would happen? You'd you would get die. to meet me in the ICU. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yes. Yes. And then ironically, you'd have to start taking cortisol. Like the, the problem isn't that you're producing too much cortisol. No, that's the problem. The problem is that you're not producing enough and your blood pressure would drop. Blood sugar management would be super, super uh, uh, unreliable and effectively incompatible with life. Uh, and uh, in any case, that's maybe we'll do a podcast on adrenal fatigue. We'll get Carl Nadolsky on here and we'll talk about that. But uh, yeah, so he's, he did some stuff. Um, in any case, that's the 1870s. In 1935, uh, two researchers, uh, Boutinant and Ruzika, were the individuals who first actually made testosterone. They were able to synthesize it in a lab. They actually won a Nobel Prize for this in 1939. Um, and subsequently, pharmaceutical companies started making it. It was available. Uh, you didn't need a prescription for it. It wasn't super regulated in the 50s and whatnot. Um, but yeah, first created in the 30s. Um, and they won a Nobel Prize for it. Uh, so when talking about testosterone, it is one of many androgenic anabolic steroids, which are also known as AAS. Uh, and so if you see AAS, that, that acronym, it just stands for androgenic anabolic steroids, um, which is a type of performance enhancing drug. Um, typically, this refers to taking exogenous substances at higher than normal doses. When people say AAS, they're not talking about testosterone replacement therapy, for example. Um, and even though some other PEDs are steroids, like uh, uh, glucocorticoids, for example, can be used in sort of inflammatory conditions or pain management or whatever, and are on the prohibited substance list by the World Anti-Doping Association, 
they're not androgenic anabolic steroids because they're not androgenic or anabolic. So anabolic refers to the skeletal muscle building properties. So when you hear about anabolism, that's generally the increase in tissue, whether it's muscle mass, fat mass, et cetera. And then androgenic refers to the induction and maintenance of male secondary sexual characteristics like male hair growth patterns, voice changes, enlargement of the larynx. So that's the Adam's apple, et cetera. Uh, these secondary characteristics also actually include anabolic actions on the muscle. So maybe androgenic anabolic steroids is actually like an oxymoron because you could just call it anabolic. Oh, like steroids. a redundant, redundant. <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. Uh, so there are, again, many other agents other than testosterone that have been used in human medicine that also are used as anabolic androgenic steroids or AAS, such as nandrolone, uh, which is like DECA, Darabolin, um, or oxandrolone, which is called Anavar, uh, and others that were used in veterinary medicine. Uh, each agent has their own dosing their own effects, risks, et cetera, that are beyond the scope of a single podcast. Like, honestly, we could do a 50-part series on all these different things and still come up short. So for interested parties, I would recommend William Llewellyn's book called Anabolics. It's now in its 11th edition. I have this book. It's pretty good as far as going through. These are all the different agents. Here's all the different dosing used in either medicine or veterinary medicine. And here are the doses that people use <laughs> recreationally or for sport. And so for somebody who's interested in this, uh, particularly healthcare providers who are maybe unaware or just untrained in this particular sort of field, uh, that is a good reference book. Uh, to It's a good jumping off point because you get to kind of see an overview and then you can go into the primary literature. Um, but can you imagine if you're a primary care doc and you have a person come in and they're on a number of different agents that you've never heard of at doses that you're not aware? Like, where do you even start? You just like Google like yeah, Ox I mean, Oxandrolone. That, uh, <laughs> that has happened to me. So <laughs> yeah, that happened to me in residency. This guy came in, huge dude like monster. Right. And, uh, he came to me because he's like, Oh, you're, you lift weights, you're, you're into it or whatever. I just need somebody to like kind of oversee this. And I remember his T levels were above, they were above the reference range and he was on like seven different agents. And I remember I was talking to the attending about my plan and they're like, how do you know what all these things are? And I'm like, I told him about this book and I was like, that's kind of how I figured this out. And he's like, good work. I have no idea what you're talking about. And I'm like, okay. <laughs> Yeah, he's, can't blame him. Yeah, exactly. He's like, should we rec should we refer this guy to endocrinology? I'm like, I mean, we can. I just don't know that the endocrinologist is going <laughs> to be up on this. Either. Right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> okay. So in any case, in the United States, most accounts of the history of doping or PED use in sport claim that a physician to the U.S. weightlifting team, Dr. John Ziegler, a.k.a. Montana Jack, great <laughs> Great awesome nickname. nickname. Yeah. <laughs> Traveled to Vienna in 1954 with the U.S. team and was told by a Soviet coach, uh, apparently over drinks, that the weightlifters were taking exogenous testosterone. Upon returning to the United States, he began administering testosterone to uh, Olympic weightlifters and bodybuilders at York Barbell, where he trained. Uh, and the story goes that Dr. Z, as he's known, uh, helped develop the oral anabolic steroid called uh, methandrostenolone or Dianabol, D-Ball as it's referred to, which was released by the pharmaceutical company called Ciba in 1958. Dr. Z subsequently swapped out testosterone for D-Ball in preparation for the next Olympics held in Rome in 1960. Long story short, the Americans still lost to the Soviets in Olympic weightlifting at that, Olympi at that Olympics, and Dr. Z lost interest in experimenting with athletes after apparently finding out that some had taken 20 times the recommended dose of Dianabol, subsequently developing liver problems. Hell yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, a few years later, in uh, Science Magazine 1972, 
he was quoted in saying, I lost interest in fooling around with IQs of that caliber. <laughs> now it's about as widespread among these idiots as marijuana. <laughs> in later years, Dr. Z regretted introducing uh, androgenic anabolic steroids to athletes, and he recalled, uh, I wish to God I'd never done it. I'd like to go back and take that whole chapter out of my life, which I thought. Man, super interesting story. <laughs> yeah, gr- interesting story. Great insight also, although yeah. maybe a little aggressive with the people <laughs> he was treating. Because you think of all these weightlifters or whatever, they're like, oh, you're a doctor. You know what you're doing, you know, whatever. Maybe I'll take a little bit more. And then he's like, yeah. these guys are idiots. I'm like, <laughs> oh, gosh, maybe don't say that. Yeah. Um, okay, so let's, put a, let's do a little timeline here uh, about the history of anabolic androgenic steroid use in sport. So again, testosterone was first synthesized in the 30s and released by pharmaceutical companies in the 50s. In 1954, Russians were using uh, AAS for weightlifting championships in Vienna, and Dr. Z found out about that, subsequently did that whole story we just talked about. 1962 was the inaugural Mr. Olympia bodybuilding contest, which is a huge bodybuilding contest in the United States. So starting to get some sort of social pressures to be big, jacked, muscular men. 1968, the uh, International Olympic Committee, the IOC, forms a medical committee to fight misuse of drugs by athletes. Athletes, And they were like, hey, maybe we should uh, make sure these guys aren't taking you know, harmful agents, performance enhancing agents, unfair advantage, all this other sort of stuff. So we'll, maybe we'll do some testing. Uh, they did some token testing at the 1968 games held in Mexico City, and they banned uh, the use of anabolic androgenic steroids, uh, but they didn't test for them. They just said, hey, don't do that. Don't do that. But they didn't have an analytical test for them. Sure. So yeah. like, can't really test. 1972, the Munich Games uh, was the first introduction of major drug testing. They did over 2,000 plus tests, but only for stimulants and narcotics, again, because they didn't really have any tests available for anabolic steroids. 1977, the American College of Sports Medicine publishes a position paper that says that uh, androgenic anabolic steroids are not effective for muscle strength and muscle mass gains. That's 1977. 1982, Conan the Barbarian and Rambo came out. Again, more sort of social <laughs> Pivot pressure. Yeah. Pivot. Well, you know, you're, you're wondering like, huh, how did this become a thing in society? Yeah. Yeah. 1983, one year later, Dan Duquesne's book, The Underground Steroid Handbook, was published. And it detailed like how to form a, a steroid cycle, what agents to use, what dosing to use, where to get them from, et cetera. Uh, subsequently, that's been published like a number of different times and sold millions of copies. So again, more sort of uh, interest in these sort of things. Uh, in 1987, so four years after that, the ACSM revised it position, says that, hey, yeah, anabolic uh, androgenic steroids are effective for gains. Like, okay, we've, we learned a little bit in 10 years. And in 1988, one year later, the Federal Anti-Drug Abuse Act of 1988 changes uh, AAAS distribution from a misdemeanor to a felony. Um, apparently, this was on the heels of a a survey study that showed that six and a half percent of high school seniors in the United States reported use of androgenic anabolic steroids that year. So they were like, we got to do something for the children. Um, So that's 1988. 1990s, what happened was there was this big sort of discovery of what was going on in Germany from like 1965 to 1989. There was the East German state sponsored doping program. Um, East Germany was also referred to as the German Democratic Republic or GDR. They basically ran this talent ID program that was funded by the state. So they had sports schools and clubs staffed by sports medicine specialists, sports scientists, and well-qualified coaches, all financially supported by the state and offering significant rewards as far as money, fame, etc. Uh, to its successful athletes and their families. 
At the same time, a dianabol derivative, so D-ball derivative called Terinabol, was derived by a GDR-owned company in 1965, which was given along with other agents like testosterone to their athletes, particularly women. And so just as a comparison between East Germany and West Germany, you're like, look, look, similar population. They're just literally separated by a wall. You would expect similar level of Olympic medals at the Olympics. And so when you actually look at the medal count from 1956 to 1964, before this sort of state-sponsored talent ID and doping program started, yeah, the West Germans uh, did better. They had 81 medals compared to the GDR or East Germans. They had 45 medals. At the 1968 Olympics in Mexico City, uh, the East Germans, GDR, had 25 medals and the West Germans had 26 medals. But then if you look at the 1972, 1976 and 1984 uh, Olympics um, and you compare the medal count between both sides of the wall at that point, the East Germans, GDR, had 258 medals and the West Germans had 119 medals. And you're like, I wonder what happened. Did they just subsequently get all these great athletes or did they make these great athletes? Uh, and it was reported that treatment with uh, androgenic anabolic steroids for four years, coupled with, as they quote, scientific training methods, could improve shot, di- uh, shot put distance in men by two and a half to four meters and in women by four and a half to five meters. Women were four to five seconds faster over a 400 meter dash uh, and seven to 10 seconds faster over 800 meters. Evidence of this exists today because no female athlete has come within a half a second of the longest standing track and field record of all time, which is in the 400 meter race set in 1985 by a East German female athlete treated with Terinabol. Wow. Crazy. (laughs) State sponsored doping program. But that was sort of a news break at the time. Like, holy crap, this is what's been happening. Uh, So anyway, that was the early 90s. In 1999, that's when WADA was actually established, the World Anti-Doping Association. 2003, Major League Baseball implemented an anti-doping policy, uh, which is of note because this is 20 years later than the NBA and the NFL who did this back in the 80s. Uh, In 2004, uh, the Anabolic Steroid Control Act of 2004 was signed into law, which added additional prohibited agents from distribution and possession and increased the penalties. Again, these are all felonies uh, at this point. 2005, the congressional hearings on steroid use in baseball took place. And in 2007, that's when the Mitchell report came out. Do you remember that, Austin? Like all that? Yes, I, I grew up playing baseball and paying attention to all this stuff. And definitely during like the home run races of that era between Sammy Sosa and McGuire and, and Barry Bonds and that whole kind of period of time. So was definitely closely uh, watching all that stuff growing up. Yeah, the government sort of like interest in this was wild to me. And, Unusual. And I, yeah, <laughs> for sure. Uh, and subsequently in 2012, that's when Lance Armstrong was stripped of his titles retroactively. And so there's this longstanding history, like ever since the inception or the creation of androgenic anabolic steroids, that athletes have been using them. It's not a modern phenomenon because even before these particular agents were created, athletes have been trying to get an advantage. So even as far back as the Olympic Games of 668 BC, runners were reported to use a diet uh, almost exclusively of dried figs to improve running performance. I looked up like what do dried figs do? Effectively, they have a bunch of antioxidants, but who knows what else is in there? Um, Ancient Greeks used brandy and wine to be like a sort of analgesic. Roman gladiators use stimulants, including coca leaves and muscarine containing mushrooms for stimulant properties. And in the 19th century, during multi-day cycling races, uh, racers used strychnine and cocaine in addition to their caffeine at apparently higher and higher doses 
as they got more and more tired. Either way, don't generally recommend strychnine and cocaine for performance enhancement. There no. might be some uh, some downsides to that that you'd be uh, you'd be wise to avoid. <laughs> yeah, but the point is, this has been happening for a long time, and you know, as long as there have been purported benefits to be had from various agents, people have been using them. It's like we enhance our performance because we can, and we like the results. It's just like there's something out there, and you're incentivized to do it. Yeah, humans are gonna select that path. So, okay, that's a brief history. And I definitely have linked some papers about this uh, if you're interested in the description uh, for this podcast. Let's talk about how many people, athletes and otherwise, are actually using performance enhancing drugs. Short answer, a lot uh, of both, uh, you know, athletes and recreational like participants or even non-competitors. But uh, recent data is actually hard to come by. So one of the best uh, couple of studies on this were done in like 2000 from 2010 to 2013. A 2012 survey found that uh, about 12% of athletes would dope if it were legal and there were no consequences. 5% said they would dope if it were legal and it would guarantee them an Olympic gold medal, but it would also mean they would die within five years. And, and I, there's been some conjecture about that sort of stat. Uh, and apparently this is called the Goldman dilemma. Uh, physician and journalist Robert Goldman effectively asked elite athletes the same question uh, from 1982 to 1995, twice a year, and he compiled these results. And so to the extent they're accurate or like the athletes were being honest, like hard to say, obviously, but still that's wild. Can you yeah, imagine? It's like, a, it's like an athlete's trolley problem kind of question. <laughs> yeah, you pull the lever or whatever. <laughs> you get a medal, but you die. <laughs> yeah. I'm trying to think like, I don't know that there's any sport that I care about enough or like the, the performance, the sort of, you know, how that Im- would impact my life that I'd be like, yeah, I would take this, you know, but I'm going to die in five years. Yeah, absolutely not. But I mean, it, it depends on why you train, why you compete and what you perceive to be, you know, the benefits of winning. And I think that totally. for us at this stage, the benefits of winning, we perceive to be exclusively like for ourselves. We don't, at least yeah. for myself, don't particularly care how anybody else sees me, whether I win something or don't. And so therefore yeah. there's no genuine incentive there to do something like that. Yeah. Uh, two subsequent uh, anonymous surveys were done at um, international track and field events. In the 2011 track and field world championships, 29% of survey respondents admitted to the use of PEDs within the last year. And at the 2011 Pan uh, Arab Games, 45% of respondents admitted to using PEDs within the last year. Uh, interestingly, the WADA detection rate of PED use, uh, it's positive in only 1% to 2% of samples. And USADA, which is the U.S. branch of WADA, has a detection rate of less than 1%. And so you're like, a lot of people are using, but we're not catching a lot of them. Uh, catching, I'm putting in quotations because it's like, you know, who's deciding the rules and like, are they fair? And do we have a- adequate testing, this, that, and the other? That's a whole nother podcast that we probably will never do because yeah. – only like three of our listeners are actually interested in that um okay so as far as like the epidemiology so how many people are using again anonymous surveys can be problematic because uh, it's difficult to get people to respond honestly and so some of the best data on this they use this thing called a coin flip randomization so effectively regardless of the truthful answer if the they do this electronically like on a computer and if this sort of computerized like coin flip thing is heads, you always answer yes, regardless of the truth. But if it answers tails, uh, when, the, when the thing comes up tails, you're supposed to answer truthfully. And so there's a known distribution of coin flip sort of distribution, right? Like 
50, should be 50-50. And so the difference between the distribution of a coin flip versus response rates gives more accurate data. That's the thought here, uh, particularly for like undesirable behaviors. So when you look at that data alone, the lifetime prevalence of uh, androgenic anabolic steroid use worldwide in men is about 1% to 5% globally across all men. It's much more common in men, greater than 50 to 1 compared to women. This uh, does not necessarily mean chronic use of either uh, androgenic anabolic steroids or PEDs, uh, because this could be as simple as just a one-time use like or short-term experimental use. Most people uh, who have used have used by their early 20s. Uh, it's most common in former elite or near elite athletes. And uh, body dysmorphia or bigorexia, as it's called, is a risk factor for use among men. Uh, in women, a 2014 uh, meta-analysis showed that the lifetime prevalence was 1.6%. And these folks, uh, or there's an over-representation of athletes, again, either elite or near elite athletes, um, those who have been incarcerated or are currently incarcerated, and those who are gym goers. And so, yeah, women still use these things at just at a lower sort of rate overall than, than men. Um, as far as competitive athletes go, the range of use is about 20 to 60%, which again is probably higher than some people think. I would, I would guess that's higher than what like the gen pop sort of thinks, but lower than what like gym rats think. Yeah. Gym rats are like, ah, everybody's using, you know, <laughs> I don't know. Um, but yeah, it's also common in gym rats. Speaking of uh, some survey uh, data suggests over 75% of men who go regularly go to the gym have used uh, androgenic anabolic steroids at least once in their life. And, and this is kind of wild to me, in a review of 500 anonymous steroid users, 78% of whom were non-competitive bodybuilders or non-athletes, 60% reported administering at least 1,000 milligrams of testosterone or its equivalent a week, with 25% of those admitting the concomitant use of human growth hormone and insulin for their anabolic effects. Not surprisingly, 99% of these folks reported side effects from steroid use. Yeah, That's, I would expect it at, that, at those doses and just like people using insulin. <laughs> yeah, <idea>. right. <laughs> yeah, just in, just in general. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, when you dig into this data, it also varies by country, likely due to social and uh, cultural differences, other pressures that people are facing. So, for example, a 2013 questionnaire of U.S. college athletes, uh, about 20% reported that they have used PEDs at one point in their life. And again, gen pop is about 1% to 15%. So this estimates that between 4 million, uh, between 1%, uh, shoot, this model estimates about 4 million uh, individuals between ages 13 and 50 have used PEDs at some point, whereas uh, you compare that to Sweden, a 2012 uh, survey uh, from that country showed that only 0.7% of men and 0.002% of women had used uh, PEDs at that point. So just differences, I think, in society. And I don't know. I mean, you think about American culture and especially that timeline we went through, we got Conan the Barbarian, we got Rambo, you got G.I. Joe who progressively got bigger and bigger and bigger, like, you know, akin to the Barbie doll, yeah. um, you know, and, and women sort of pressures on how you should look. I think they said that if you like humanize the G.I. Joe character from the 80s, uh, late 80s, that he would have like a 50 inch chest and like 25 inch arms and all this <laughs> other sort of stuff. And you imagine like little boys are playing with the, you know, G.I. Joe and they're like, I got to get big. And then they see Conan, they're like, got to get big. <laughs> I All these sort of, yeah, yeah, definitely some interesting pressures there socially. Uh, as far as where people get these androgenic anabolic steroids, uh, about seventy-one percent get them from the internet. Twenty-four percent get them from a gym dealer. I don't know how this goes down. I've never been offered 
drugs in a gym. But I get, I suppose though, I do know like where I would get them. I mean, I know, you know, the people that use. And so it's like, just ask maybe, uh, some smaller percentage, uh, use, uh, get them through foreign mail and some get them from uh, prescription. The big thing here in my mind is the risk of contamination. And like, you don't know what the dose is. Yeah. The, the thing might be labeled, but because pharmaceutical companies are not producing a lot of these agents either at all anymore for agents have been like phased out over time or because they're just not used medically uh, or you're getting like veterinary medicines. A lot of people are just making these things. They're either getting powders uh, from overseas or they have a, a dealer who's making them in what's called an underground lab. And it's like these folks don't have access to like pharmaceutical grade manufacturing techniques. And so it's like it, the bottle might say testosterone enanthate, 250 milligrams per milliliter. And it's a 10 milliliter vial. But you don't know what's in there. Yeah, pretty and terrifying. Could, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And it's like how many people have access to like a mass spec or something like that where they could send it off for analysis? And how many people would do that? Yeah, that know? stuff's expensive to even do. Yeah. Uh, when they survey users on like – yeah, how do you feel about doctors in like helping to manage this? 92% of survey responders said that their physicians probably don't know anything about this, which which I think actually is probably true. I, I mean, Austin, what's your sort of, what would be your expectation of a board certified either internist or, or primary care doc uh, and their knowledge on like PED use in sport? Yes. I mean, as, as, uh, as those folks reported, almost nothing. And I think that most, and, and, Honestly, like this is not something that I claim much uh, expertise in myself. I I think we are uh, taught a bit more about you know the potential complications of use, be it related to blood clots, you know thromboembolism, things like that, PEs, DVTs, uh, the risk of heart failure, the risk of certain kinds of kidney disease and liver disease. Those would be the main things, and I would be, you know, those are things that I handle all the time, you know, from other causes in day to day practice. And so being able to recognize and, and manage heart failure, kidney failure, you know, liver disease from these things is something I would be comfortable with. But the actual use and application and dosing of these things as it relates to sport and cycles and, and managing, you know, as people come off all that other kind of stuff. Uh, none. No. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and I think it's important to note. It, so it's not part of like routine medical training for very, like any specialty that I can, I can think of. I would imagine some sports med docs get some initiation into this, but it's more probably dependent on the population that they end up working with. So for example, if you're a sports med doc and you're working with, you know, people in their sixth and seventh decades of life who are like, I hurt my knee skiing recreationally, like that's who you normally see. You're probably not going to have a bunch of knowledge about <laughs> anabolic steroids, but if you worked with like a sports team, you may have more primary knowledge of that. The The point is like, uh, like you said, Doctors are, you know, great at taking care of like what has happened if a bad outcome does happen. You know, they can recognize, oh, yeah, that's heart failure. Oh, yeah, that's a liver injury, whatever. But as far as like monitoring things or like providing dosing recommendations or, you know, whatever. Yeah, yeah. And so I'm, when I think about like what are the doctors, what is a doctor's role in all of this? I can think of a few separate cases. So case number one, like a harm reduction thing. Right. So if if a if a patient is honest, which I hopefully you have good uh, patient doctor relationship, great rapport, and there's a lot of trust there. Ideally, the patient would feel comfortable telling you like, hey, here's what I'm on. Here's what I'm taking or whatever. And there could be some sort of monitoring in place like, yep, we'll do blood blood tests at these intervals. And we're having agreement like, look, if your liver function test, for example, go to this this level, I get really worried about 
we, us going to a place where we can't come back from. And so maybe that we have an agreement that we will stop at that point. Uh, alternatively, another another sort of use for doctor would be like this person who wants to come off but is like worried about, you know, do I need to take anything else? How should I be monitored, et cetera? So like cessation would be uh, another role. Um, but man, I, I don't know. I, I wouldn't feel comfortable being like, yeah, here's the dosing, here's the agents, et cetera. And, and further, people without medical training who are doing this, it's not like there's like a robust amount of literature out there comparing different agents at different doses over time for not only like short-term performance improvement, but also like long-term sort of health and performance trajectory. And so most of the stuff's just made up from like small short-term trials or like self-reported type stuff. And so it's really hard to get a sense of like, oh yeah, this is the right stack. This is the right combination of stuff. Here are the right doses, et cetera. It's all just kind of like anecdotal in a way. And, and so you have these people on these steroid forums, right? That are like, oh yeah, just, you know, what you need to do is take a gram of test. So a thousand milligrams <laughs> of test. You need to take this much Anavar or whatever. Uh, and you do it for this many weeks because that's what I did. But it's like, where did you get this stuff from? How do you know the concentration was correct? You know, and also the same thing we talk about with training, this inter-individual variation in response. So just like it's all over the place. And so, yes, there are people who confidently claim like expertise in this, but I would be very wary of those folks because even though I do consider myself to have an above average level of knowledge in this stuff, I would not feel comfortable telling somebody like, hey, this is how much you should take and here's how often you should take it or whatever. And that's just because, again, we just don't know enough about these things. Yeah, pretty niche area uh, that is not going to be you know, common among clinicians. And I'd be comfortable monitoring somebody from a cardiovascular standpoint, hematologic standpoint, you know, kidney, liver, and, 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 and you know, there are other like dermatologic things and other things that can emerge that I would recognize and be able to give some advice on. But actually managing the things themselves for the outcomes that the person wants, I have no ability to do that. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Yep. Same. Okay. So let's talk about the effects of supraphysiological doses of testosterone in sport. And so just as a review again, um, the International Association of Athletics Federation, the IAAF, which I think has now changed its name to the World Athletics Council or something like that. Uh, they basically took data on athletes who have competed over many years at international levels in track and field. And they showed a normal or reference range for men to be between 220 to 850 nanograms per deciliter. And in athletic women, it was zero to 144 nanograms per deciliter, which if you compare that to the sort of gen pop level, it's about the same for men, 300 to 800. So we're talking 220 to 850. It's about the same. But for women, 15 to 46 was what we saw like in the normal level for of the gen pop women. But in athletic women, that ranges up by a factor of three to 144 nanograms per deciliter. We'll talk about why that is here in a little bit. But in short, there's an overrepresentation of women in sport with higher than normal testosterone levels, whether that be due to something like polycystic ovarian syndrome or like congenital adrenal hyperplasia or disorders of sexual development, DSD. Um, talk about this a little bit in the uh, Shades of Grey article, uh, but we'll talk about that uh, a little bit more in depth later. So higher 
then these levels could be considered super physiological. But uh, there's a few sort of nuances here. So one, in the last testosterone podcast, we talked about uh, the exercise-induced hypogonadal uh, male condition, EHMC. So those are folks, particularly endurance athletes, who have lower than normal testosterone levels due to their training volume, but no apparent sort of signs or symptoms. And so if that person was taking testosterone, exogenous testosterone, they might have quote-unquote normal levels of T, but it would be higher than normal for them based on, on their condition. Or again, it could be endogenous. So individuals with PC, women, particularly with PCOS, DSD, uh, et cetera. But usually when we're talking about super physiological levels of testosterone in sport, we're talking only about those who are taking exogenous testosterone at higher than normal doses, not those with naturally higher levels. And this kind of brings us to the next point, the difference between a TRT dose, testosterone replacement therapy dose, and performance enhancing drug doses of these things, plus like stacking additional agents on top of the testosterone. For example, if you were like East German, you'd be taking Terenabol, or if you were with Doc Z back at York Barbell, you'd be taking Dianabol. So Austin, what is like a normal TRT dose of testosterone? Yeah, there are different ways to dose it. Some people dose it, you know, on a weekly basis, some which I don't love dose it once every two weeks, which I think is too far apart. But usually it's, you know, on average, something around 100 milligrams a week on average is like a reasonable starting dose. Sometimes that can be split into 50 milligrams twice a week. You might bump that up if somebody needs it to 75 milligrams twice a week, um, or, or somebody might prefer a once a week dosing, or you can, you know, you can space out the timing however you want. But more or less, that's like an average starting point, And then you kind of tweak it little by little based on how they do their levels, side effects, things like that. Yeah. And so to be clear, the the definition is sort of in the acronym with TRT, testosterone replacement therapy. You're replacing the testosterone that either should have been there uh, and is ultimately not, but it's not to higher than normal levels. It's to uh, somewhere in that 300 to 800 level. Um, and so it's not, you're not taking a super high doses. Uh, so let's talk about the impact of taking exogenous testosterone on muscle mass and strength. So this first study is is pretty interesting because these folks did no training, no exercise for 20 weeks. Um, so 61 men, they were separated into five groups. Group one got 25 milligrams of testosterone enanthate. That's just a long acting ester similar to what we, I believe that's what they give in Europe. And we do testosterone cypionate in the United States, mostly for uh, the intramuscular administration of TRT. But in any case, group one got 25 milligrams a week. Group two got 50 milligrams a week. Group three got 125 milligrams per week. So starting to get to that TRT level dose. Uh, group four got 300 milligrams per week and group five got 600 milligrams per week. They uh, recommended these folks eat 1.2 grams per kilogram of protein per day, but again, no training for 20 weeks. And so when it comes to muscle size and strength increases after the 20 weeks. Uh, this was all measured by DEXA, by the way. And then they actually had them do like, uh, uh, I believe it was a leg press and a bench press, um, 1RM to see like how strong, they, if they got any stronger. The groups who got 25, 50, or 125 milligrams, the TRT doses or less than TRT doses at 25 and 50 milligrams, basically no change in muscle size or strength after 20 weeks. And again, they weren't exercising. But in the groups that got 300 and 600 milligrams, there was dose-dependent increases in both muscle size and strength without training. So after 20 weeks, the group that got 300 milligrams of testosterone per week saw an increase in their fat-free mass. So that's everything that's not fat. So it's bone, muscle, water, et cetera. They increased their fat-free mass by 5.2 kilograms. So over 10 pounds in 20 weeks. 
the group that got 600 milligrams a week, they increased their fat-free mass by 7.9 kilos. So almost 17 pounds of fat-free mass. And they actually lost a kilo of fat mass. Uh, as far as strength increases or strength changes go, the group who got 300 milligrams per week increased their leg press 1RM by 72 kilos without exercising. <laughs> now, now some of that's got to be due to this sort of uh, like 1RM, like repeating the test, mm-hmm. but all groups did that. You see what I'm saying? All like even the group who got 25 milligrams, 50 milligrams, 125 milligrams did that same sort of, they repeated the test, mm-hmm. but they didn't see an increase in leg press. But the 300 milligram group saw a 72 kilo, <laughs> 150 something, 165 pound increase in their leg press, getting 300 milligrams per week. And then for 600 milligrams uh, per week, they increased their 1RM leg press by 76 and a half kilos. So a little bit more, again, a dose dependent relationship between testosterone level and increases in muscle mass or strength. Once you're taking more than TRT once, cause they didn't see that in the lower dose group. Um, a second study, this is a 10 week studies, 43 dudes aged 18 to 35. And uh, they got either 600 milligram of testosterone per week or a placebo, and they were further split into either exercising or not exercising. And the exercising, uh, the exercise program was actually pretty good. They were bench pressing, they were squatting, they were doing rows, lap pull downs, et cetera. They didn't deadlift because I don't know, maybe they worried about their backs or something, <laughs> but they didn't deadlift. In any case, we look at uh, fat-free mass sort of changes after the 10 weeks. Placebo with no exercise gained basically nothing in the way of lean body mass. Um, testosterone with no exercise. So they were taking 600 milligrams of testosterone over three times the normal TRT dose. They gained three kilos of fat-free mass. The placebo group who did exercise gained two kilos of fat-free mass. And the group who got 600 milligrams of testosterone and did exercise gained six kilograms of fat-free mass. So a couple of things you can take away from that. One, yes, you can gain muscle mass by taking steroids and not exercising. It works better when you exercise, you know, almost double the gains uh, with respect to fat-free mass, uh, but pretty impressive there. With respect to strength on the bench press, again, there was about no change in placebo, uh, the placebo group who did not exercise. In the group who took testosterone but didn't exercise, they saw about a nine kilo increase in their bench press. Although I did find it interesting that that group's initial like average bench press was 96 kilograms. And I'm like, bro, are these guys all benching 220? Yeah, unusually high for (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Uh, in the group who got the placebo but did exercise, they saw a 10 kilo increase in their 1RM bench press. And then the group who took testosterone, 600 milligrams per week and exercise, they saw a 22 kilo increase in their bench press uh, on average. With respect to strength, uh, increasing the squat, again, no change in those who got the placebo and didn't exercise, frowny face. In those who took testosterone but didn't exercise, they say a 13 kilo increase in their squat 1RM. Those who took a placebo but did exercise, they saw a 25 kilo or 55 pound increase um, in their 1RM squat. And then those who got testosterone uh, and did exercise, they saw a 38 kilogram increase in their squat after 10 weeks. Austin, would you take uh, a 38 kilo increase in your squat? I would take almost any increase. (laughs) Literally (laughs) anything. Give me half a kilo. I'll take it. (laughs) Yeah. So all this to me suggests that Again, there's this dose-dependent relationship between testosterone levels given at a higher than the reference range, higher than the the normal 300 to 800 milligram range um, with uh, respect to strength and muscle mass. Um, and then, yes, exercise is beneficial. Uh, it's particularly beneficial when you're also taking high doses of anabolic steroids. But you can, in fact, gain muscle and gain strength by taking anabolic steroids and not exercising, just not as much as 
as if you also exercise, which is interesting to me because the common sort of thing you hear from, you know, not just gym bros, but people in the space, they're like, hey, uh, if you don't know how to exercise already, don't know how to eat, don't take anabolic steroids. And it's like, well, yeah, you would get a better benefit, a bigger benefit if you were training properly, eating properly, et cetera. You think these people who were not exercising for 10 and 20 weeks had all of that rest of the stuff figured out? Like I, they were just living their lives and they still got stronger, still gained muscle mass. So I don't know that that advice, the advice is probably good. Like, hey, just don't do it if you're new to this. Yeah. <laughs> but, but you can, in fact, gain strength and muscle mass. Yeah, I similarly would advise against it, just not for that reason or not with those kind of caveats or barriers in in place as being the reason to not. <laughs> totally. Yep. Uh, this had uh, some some data on women. It's not been extensively studied in sport outside of that German Democratic Republic group that state sponsored doping sort of protocol uh, or in the gen pop outside of conditions like HIV or hypopituitarism or whatever. Uh, reports suggested that the administration of androgenic anabolic steroids in female athletes for four years, again, improved shot put distance by four to five, 4.5 to 5 meters, discus throw distance by 11 to 20 meters. While in racing events, athletes using um, AAS were four to five seconds and seven to 10 seconds faster in the 400 and 15 meter events, respectively. As far as why it's less commonly studied, I think overall you're looking at a smaller sample size, right? There's just not as many people out there that you can study for like case reports, case series, surveys, et cetera. There's also the virilizing side effects are in general less sort of tolerable. So like male hair, hair, hair loss, male hair growth patterns, et cetera, voice deepening, et cetera. All of that, when it happens to men, people are like, yeah, that's fine. But if it happens to women, just in general, less sort of accepted uh, or and and it might not, you know, multiple things can be true at once. Maybe women are just smarter than us, <laughs> <laughs> just in general, smarter. Um, there are some endogenous or sort of inborn um, conditions where people can have higher than normal testosterone levels in women. So like we said, PCOS, polycystic ovarian syndrome, uh, congenital adrenal hyperplasia, disorders of sexual development, DSD are far more common than expected in female sport compared to the general population. So for example, 15 to 31% of elite women athletes have PCOS, whereas the rate uh, in the gen pop is 4 to 12%. So pretty, pretty significant difference. Uh, with respect to uh, women who have the genetic karyotype of 46XY instead of 46XX, this is uh, one of the many conditions that fall under the disorders of sexual development or DSD sort of umbrella. Those women in sport are overrepresented by a factor of 140 times in elite sport compared to the gen population. Um, but still, overall, there's likely a similar dose-dependent relationship um, with exogenous testosterone administration once they're above normal limits. Um, and so this, some of that data comes from, again, HIV patients um, where they give people a little bit of testosterone uh, because their testosterone levels are effectively crashed. And the women, yeah, they gain more muscle mass in accordance with the dose. Um, it just seems like less of them are using, and we just don't have a lot of data showing like, yeah uh, this, this, you know, if you stepwise increase the dose, you're going to gain even more muscle mass, more strength, et cetera. It just hasn't been as well studied. So the TLDR of this, there's a dose dependent relationship between testosterone and muscle strength, muscle mass, and testosterone levels. Once you're above the reference range, this relationship is not the same within the reference range. So for example, if uh, Austin had a testosterone level of 400 and I had a testosterone level of 800, 
we wouldn't be able to tell or predict any differences in training outcomes. But if Austin was on the pump on the sauce and his testosterone level was 2000 and mine was 800, well, we would predict that Austin would gain more muscle mass and more strength than I would because of the supra physiological or higher than normal doses of testosterone that he's not only taking, but also now floating around his system. But I think this whole relationship that when you see this dose dependent relationship between testosterone and muscular strength, testosterone and muscle mass, this is sort of like muddied the waters when people are talking about testosterone levels and its relationship to performance, because I think that's where all this optimization BS comes from, right? It's like, yeah, look, look at these athletes taking testosterone, low, taking testosterone, they get bigger, faster, stronger, et cetera. Uh, so that means I need to optimize my testosterone level. That's what people are taking away from this. But I don't, I think that's just muddy the waters. What do you think about that, Austin? Yeah. I mean, I think that as we've said, interpretation of even things as simple as blood tests is already complicated enough in people who are not on any of these kind of medic uh, drugs or supplements or anything like that. And then once you start to throw in these other things that people can be using, abusing in certain ways, um, and then trying to correlate it with outcomes that themselves are complicated and not like unidirectional, like take a drug performance improves directly and exclusively related to that. There's tons of other kind of mechanisms by which these things can help be it psychological and recovery based and various other factors that are at play that it just all gets so complicated that people, uh, people's simplistic explanations for how these things work, uh, what you should do with them, how you should use them, uh, tend to fall short, I think of reality. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Again, particularly when you're talking about manipulating testosterone levels within the normal limits without taking super physiological doses, yeah. it's just that you're confounding one thing for another, yeah. I think. Okay. So last section here is the use of androgenic anabolic steroids harmful. And I'll just say, say this. This question cannot be answered simply because it depends on the agent used, the route of administration, the dose, uh, and the duration of use, the use of adjunctive therapies and substances, the person's age, underlying physical and mental health, and a whole bunch of other factors that, again, just depend on uh, not only, again, what the person's using, but who the person is that's using them. Uh, there's, in general, weak evidence for adverse effects, particularly with like moderate doses or short-term use. Uh, most of these are based in like case reports and similar sort of isolated findings like, oh, you know, bodybuilder has heart attack. And, you know, people are like, what, how many steroids was he using? Um, but we don't have like these large data sets that show this definitive relationship there. Uh, it's also confounded with other issues because in general, people who are going to take anabolic steroids, particularly those from like underground labs, tend to also engage in other risky behaviors, whether it's smoking, drinking, unregulated supplements, illicit drug use, uh, you know, various sexual practices, et cetera. And these things can still be contaminated. Again, you don't know if somebody's making this in their bathtub or in their kitchen, like you don't know what you're taking. Um, and so there's some issues there with as far as figuring out like, well, what was the actual dose they were using? What were the actual agents that they were using, et cetera? Um, still, as far as harm goes, the most reliable issue we see with um, testosterone use um, as part of the, you know, AAS sort of umbrella is reproduction shutdown. Basically, in clinical trials, uh, when people take exogenous testosterone containing either, uh, they're either getting TRT, they're taking super physiological doses, they're taking even a male birth control that contains testosterone, their endogenous production of testosterone and subsequent like LH, luteinizing hormone, FSH, follicle stimulating hormone, all those levels go in the toilet. And so you're not producing enough viable sperm to fertilize an egg. Uh, so 
that's probably the most reliable sort of thing that we see. Basically, any an- anabolic agent tends to shut down the sort of reproductive system in men. Although, uh, when we look at uh, guys who are on a testosterone-based male hormone regimen, serum, gonadotropin, that's FSH and LH, uh, and testosterone concentrations typically normalize within one to three months. And sperm concentrations typically normalize within 12 to 16 months after they come off uh, the use of exogenous testosterone. There are other agents that people can use uh, to come back a little faster, things like clomiphene or uh, gonadotropin therapy after they've used uh, androgenic anabolic steroids, particularly for long periods of time. So it might increase um, how quickly, how people come back to sort of normal reproductive function. Uh, so these are folks like seeking fertility. Um, but yeah, initiation of like a testosterone taper is not usually recommended in men who are seeking improved fertility because virtually any exogenous uh, administration of testosterone therapy suppresses that hypothalamic pituitary gonadal axis. And so you're just not able to create viable sperm that way. Um, yeah. Other things that we have like decent evidence on, High dose anabolic steroid use, uh, there's been reports of mania. So if you think about mood uh, uh, in general, there's like the sinusoidal wave. Uh, you oscillate between elevated mood and depressed mood. And so if it's really, really high, your mood's really, really elevated, it can dip into mania. Uh, and if it's really, really low, you can dip into actual depressive disorder. And so most people oscillate between, not between the poles. You don't go like manic, depressive, manic, depressive, but somewhere between those two things. And in general, most folks are on an uh, even keel, but uh, apparently with high doses of anabolic steroids, people can dip into full-blown mania. And so I wonder how many conversations I've had with folks in the gym who are on and they're like, yeah, no, everything's going great. I've, and I'm about to get this promotion. I'm about to, you know, move across country. I'm going to like, you know, really, really things are picking up. And it's like, is this ma- is this person manic? You and know? it's interesting because this is not exclusive to anabolic steroids. I mean, we can see steroid psychosis and, and mania from, you know, catabolic steroids, so to speak, like prednisone, you know, yep. the, the other kind of steroids that you talked about earlier definitely can can result in significant mood disturbances and, and things like that. I actually, that's something I, I do see sometimes in the, in the hospitalized setting because those medicines are used a lot more frequently. Yeah. There's also uh, some reports of depression after anabolic steroid cessation. And I don't think this is due to like this rapid loss of muscle mass because it's not really what we see. But I I think in general, uh, when you become hypogonadal, we know that that's a risk factor for depression. Uh, And also depression actually in and of itself tends to lower folks' testosterone levels. So we don't really know which way the directional arrow goes there. Uh, Likely more complicated um, than just, you know, oh yeah, low T, depressed. Depressed, low T, you know, it's more complicated than that. But yeah, pretty, pretty complicated uh, things uh, with respect to mood. Another sort of pretty reliable finding here is just this general umbrella term called dyslipidemia, which basically means your cholesterol levels are all jacked up. And so in general, anabolic steroids tend to lower HDL, increase LDL, uh, reduce uh, apolipoprotein large A, uh, and increase apolipoprotein B. And if you've been listening to any of our cholesterol stuff, read any of our cholesterol stuff, all of that leads to an increased risk of atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease or in general heart disease. So 10 out of 10 would not recommend if you're at risk of heart disease. Um, although again, if you're an individual with hypogonadism, actually replacing um, the testosterone that you should have uh, to a normal level can reduce risk of heart disease. So again, this is more complicated than just like testosterone bad for heart. It's like, well, normal testosterone levels are good for quote unquote heart health, but higher than normal or lower than normal, both of those things may be uh, not so good. Just make sure the person's adequately diagnosed and properly treated. Uh, Other things that are um, 
uh, found with anabolic steroid use, again, depending on the agent, the duration of use, the dosing, et cetera. Cardiomyopathy is when the heart the chambers of the heart actually grow, uh, left ventricular hypertrophy, so the left ventricle gets big and stiff, uh, heart failure, arrhythmias, sudden cardiac death. All of these things are based on case reports. The Again, figuring out like, yeah, was this particular agent the harmful one or was it the dosing or was it both? It's kind of tough to unpack there. Uh, probably one of the biggest things you would maybe worry about, uh, particularly uh, – as a physician managing folks who are on TRT is erythrocytosis or polycythemia. So effectively, testosterone and many of these other uh, androgenic anabolic steroids tend to expand red blood cell lines. So you get more red blood cells, more hemoglobin, higher hematocrit levels, et cetera. And like your blood can get pretty viscous at that point, which uh, generally not good for flow. <laughs> and so uh, you have your your patients. I mean, you've, you've definitely gotten you know, H and H's on these folks mm-hmm. uh, periodically just to make sure they don't, uh, they don't go up above the normal range. Yeah, this is definitely a known thing and it can become pretty, you know, symptomatic for some folks. I know some folks have developed this kind of hyperviscosity and hypertension, high blood pressure, and the thickening of the blood can lead to headaches and blurred vision and all sorts of other issues relating to, to normal organ function. And so, um, if they're going to stay on that agent and at that dose, you can't lower it, uh, at least in the short term, regardless, they should, you know, donate, donate some blood. Um, that would, however, in my mind, raise some questions about the dosing and whether we need to pull back on that. Um, so that, that can definitely be an issue as well as hypercoagulability, meaning an increased risk of, of clotting when things are that viscous and, and the blood counts are all elevated like that as well. Yep. Yeah. As you might have guessed, also some of these oral anabolic steroids, there are liver concerns, particularly at very high doses. Uh, And so this is all clouded by the fact that like liver function tests, these liver enzyme sort of tests are elevated from training in and of themselves. So I can imagine a situation where somebody's trying to do the right thing. They're, you know, they're monitoring themselves maybe. And they're like, yeah, well, my LFTs, my liver function tests are a little elevated, but that's probably from exercise, not from the Dianabol, not from the Anavar. Not, and it's like, yeah, well, it depends how high they are yeah. and how long they stay there. And, and which like, numbers are and which numbers are high too? So if it's exercise related, I'd be you know comfortable with like a mild elevation of the AST and ALT that resolve after you know take you know a couple rest days or something like that. Whereas if the bilirubin is elevated, I'm like high alert because that's way different to interpret. I would not expect somebody's billy to be elevated from exercise, for example. Yeah, and also you know the if somebody's been on these things for a long period of time and they have quote like normal. LFTs, it's not what you would expect. You're like, is the liver sort of petering out here? Have they done too much damage to not actually be able to, you're not enough cells left to kill in the the liver or damage to release those enzymes to monitor. In that case, you're like, you might be diluted into a situation (laughs) where you're like- pretty advanced liver disease at that point, yeah. Totally, yeah, you'd think there'd be other signs, but um, so definitely some concerns there. Uh, As far as breast tissue modification, yes, in men, there's a risk of gynecomastia. That's an enlargement of the mammary tissue in the uh, pectoral region, so in the breast tissue. Also, breast atrophy in women, some of that due to like uh, androgen uh, receptor sort of sensitivity and and distribution. Um, So overall, yeah, a lot of different side effects. We could, again, spend an hour on this. uh, But again, it depends on the agent. So what you're using, the dose, how it's administered, whether it's oral or whether it's given intramuscularly, uh, the person who's taking it, their health status, not only when they started, but current, and they're just sort of uh, uh, genetic risk factors. And so it's just complicated. And I think if I had to improve the sort of risk profile uh, for someone who's taking these agents, harm reduction would be the the approach I would take as far as like being able to monitor things over time, making sure that they have access to sort of, you know, 
pharmaceutical grade uh, sort of agents if they're going to take them. Although I, <laughs> if a person was like, hey, man, I'm taking testosterone, I'm taking Anivar, I'm taking DECA, I'm taking, you know, all these things. I can't prescribe those things for them. I could, you know, maybe prescribe testosterone, but the other things I can't really like give them um, without fear of like, you know, malpractice and whatnot. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, it's just a, it's a tough situation. But I think what's happening now, a lot of this happens under like a cloak of secrecy because there's a stigma around it. Uh, people may be embarrassed. Uh, and further, they don't really have any good options. Nobody's like talking about like, hey, how could you use these things in a health promoting way if you were going to use them, you know, or in a way that at least isn't deleterious. Yeah, a min- minimally harmful way. Yep. So tough to do, but I think moving towards that in both sport and the gen pop, considering how many people are using these things would be, you know, quality improvement project from a public health standpoint. I just, <laughs> with, with the criminalization and the sort of, uh, the legal sort of situation we're in right now, man, I don't see that happening unless some things get changed. Yeah. Making it a felony seemed kind of ridiculous in my opinion. <laughs> yeah. Well, the children, you got to think of the children yeah, and okay. it's like, yeah, but we have all these societal pressures and so think people are going to use them anyway. So if you really care about the children, you really care about the athletes, you'd probably have, again, this harm reduction program in place, but, uh, harm reduction Blitz. doesn't really, yeah, well, right. <laughs> yeah. Politically people might not uh, appreciate that. Okay. So that's sort of uh, the effects, the history, um, and, and whatnot about superphysiological doses of testosterone. Um, take-home message here. Androgenic anabolic steroids, AAS, are a form of performance-enhancing drugs in sport that have been used since they were made available. In sport, use of these agents is common. 20 to 60% of all athletes, non-athletes, also use these agents. Uh, overall lifetime prevalence is about one to 5% worldwide, but it's higher in the United States and higher in gym goers of both genders. Many use high doses and combinations of agents, which we just really don't know the effects of, particularly in the long term, and particularly from, uh, you know, places that aren't, you know, making these at pharmaceutical grade levels. There's a dose dependent relationship between exogenous testosterone levels once they're above the reference range uh, for both strength and muscle mass. This relationship is not true when testosterone levels are within normal limits, however. And so again, sort of confounding this dose dependent relationship once you're above the reference range has likely clouded um, the sort of interpretation of testosterone levels within normal limits. And that's why people are trying to optimize, do these various protocols, eat a certain way, lift a certain way, whatever. Um, yeah, it's just a, just confusing one thing for another. Uh, side effects are highly variable based on the agents used, the dosing, the duration, et cetera. It's easy to rationalize short-term use, but chronic dependence and use is also common in addition to other associated risky behaviors like polypharmacy, smoking, drinking, use of uh, illicit agents, otherwise, et cetera. Uh, again, harm reduction and education would likely be beneficial to both athletes and the gen pop. Austin, any take-home stuff that you feel like is important? Nothing beyond that. Um, not as, as we said, we've, we've done a fair amount of exploration and it sounds like we're going to have one more episode more on lifestyle aspects that people can focus on, which would be kind of our preferred avenue for, for most of this anyway. So. Yep. Would agree. All right. That's a wrap here on episode 233 of the Barbell Medicine Podcast, where we bring modern medicine to strength and conditioning and strength and conditioning to modern medicine. For our previous series, uh, previous podcast episodes on testosterone, check out the links in the description below for uh, stuff on our website, articles, t-shirts, supplements, templates, etc. Check the links there as well. We'd love to see you at a live in-person seminar, but if not, we'd love to see you repping our gear in the gym. 
leads to instant PRs. That's just the science. That's just the science talking. Uh, in any case, thanks for tuning in this week and every week on the Barbell Medicine Podcast. Before you go anywhere, please leave us a five-star rating and a review. It really helps drive traffic to our podcast so we can keep bringing you all the latest nuance in health and fitness. Remember everyone here at Barbell Medicine, thanks for tuning in. We'll catch you next week and every week right here on the Barbell Medicine Podcast. Bet MGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at Bet MGM. Simply download the Bet MGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C.